Good to know we have a faithful God. Through the ages, nations come and go, rulers rise and fall. But our God is faithful. Today we look at Acts chapter 9, verses 1 through 19, a day that changed the course of history. There are certain days that you probably, well, I'll give you the date, you'll tell me, you can tell me what happened. December 7th, 1941, right? A day that changed the course of history. July 31st, 1952. This is my brother's birthday. <laughs> so it's his birthday today. September 9th, 1955. It's my wife's birthday. That changed the course of history for me, and I'm very thankful for that. Acts chapter 9, beginning at verse 1. Now Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked for letters from him to the synagogues of Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, both men and women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. As he was traveling, it happened that he was approaching Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. And he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But get up and enter the city, and it will be told you what you must do. The men who traveled with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul got up from the ground, and though his eyes were open, he could see nothing. And leading him by the hand, they brought him into Damascus, and he was there three days, without sight, and neither ate nor drank. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for the work that you did in the heart of this man who was a blasphemer, a persecutor, one who was trying to destroy the church of Jesus. Lord, you met him. You changed him. And Father, you are able to meet us today, to change us today, to transform our very lives. And I pray that you would do that through your word this day. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. One of the greatest days in history was the day when this man, Saul of Tarsus, met Jesus. This was a great day, not only because how God would use this man to spread the gospel. Many of the epistles were written by the Apostle Paul. But it was also a great day because it, it encouraged the church, the early church, that God can do great things. In other words, if God could save a man like Saul, he can do anything. That, that, I'm sure that's how the early church viewed it. That if God could change this man who had such a bitter hatred for the things of God, he can do anything. So how did that happen? I want to focus on four key words with you this morning. Notice, first of all, Jesus contacted Saul in his rebellion. Can you imagine Saul of Tarsus? getting out of bed on the day that he met Jesus and saying to himself, it's about time I started following Jesus. What have I been waiting for, right? You just can't imagine anything like that. If you're familiar with Scripture, you know that that would have been the furthest thing from his mind that day. He hated the apostles. He hated the church. And he hated Jesus. 
In Saul's mind, that was not going to happen. Never would he ever bow his knee to follow Jesus. Notice what the book of Acts says about this man. Chapter 8, verse 3, But Saul began ravaging the church, entering house after house, and dragging off men and women. He would put them in prison. Our text describes it as it continued in verse 1. He was still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. He went to the high priest and asked for letters from him to the synagogues, even as far as Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, both men and women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. So here's a man who had no, no desire to follow Jesus. But while he was traveling on that road to Damascus, Jesus made contact with him. He made contact with him in a very, very dramatic way, a powerful way, and his heavenly glory, uh, the light of Jesus, blinded him for three days. Saul had picked a fight with Jesus, and Jesus won, didn't he? <laughs> you're going to pick a fight with Jesus, you're going to lose. Jesus won that day. I don't think any of us have experienced anything like this. Have you? I suppose I shouldn't assume that, but I don't know of anybody that had an experience like this, to be blinded for three days and, and hear the voice of Jesus and, and falling to the ground. But you know what? Every believer has something in common with Saul, at least one thing. And that is that Jesus is the one who initiates the contact with us in order to be saved. Because by nature, we don't seek after God. He seeks for us. We are like sheep that have gone astray, but the Lord, as the good shepherd, is seeking for us. And it started right in the Garden of Eden, didn't it? Right after Adam and Eve sinned, they were shamed, they were hiding from God, and God was the one that came to them. And remember, he said, Adam, where are you? Not as if God was saying, I know you're somewhere hiding around here. Where are you in relationship to me? God was the one who sought for Adam and Eve, and it continues to this day. I remember this young boy that was asked, did you have a part in your salvation? I sure did. What was that? He said, I did all the running, and God did all the chasing. And that's what we are by nature, running from God. But God is seeking for us. He's, as one man described, the hound of heaven. The hound of heaven. Kent Hughes says, what do we learn from all this, this text? Primarily that Christ is always the initiator. He still seeks sinners today just as he sought for Saul. We can never be sure in whom this grace is working, but we know that God always makes the first move. We search for him only in response to his seeking for us, then he says, Jesus orchestrated the Damascus confrontation, and he directs our encounters as well. So, has Jesus made contact with you? And have you embraced him today because he has sought for you? Praise God, he come to seek and to save. That which was lost. That's what he said. Remember when we let this little Zacchaeus up in the tree and the Son of Man has come 
to seek and to save which was lost. So what's the first word? Ah, contact. All right. I'm getting hard of hearing. Get so old, okay? Maybe today will be the day that you embrace the truth that Jesus is seeking for you. The second word, Jesus confronted Saul with his sin. Did you notice the first thing that Jesus said to Saul on the road? As he was traveling, it happened that he light came from heaven. Then verse 4 says, And he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Why are you persecuting me? Now, Jesus could have said, Saul, why are you persecuting my people? Why are you persecuting the church? Why are you persecuting the body of Christ? And Jesus would have been right in saying that, of course. But Jesus said, why are you persecuting me? He identifies with what we go through, right? That's obvious. When we are suffering, when we are persecuted, Jesus feels that as well. One author says, our Lord's words, why are you persecuting me, reflect the inseparable link between himself as the head of the body and its members. No blow struck on earth goes unfelt in heaven by our sympathetic high priest. So when you suffer, Jesus suffers with you. That's why he said, Saul, why are you persecuting me? These are my people. This is my body. And I, I suffer with them. But I think another reason Jesus asked Saul, why are you persecuting me? is because he wanted to make Saul aware of his greatest need. Saul's response to Jesus was the most important issue in his life because this would determine where he would spend eternity. What have you done with me? So why are you persecuting me? That's the issue of your life, what you've done with me. And what you do with me will determine where you spend eternity. John MacArthur says those who go to hell do so ultimately because of their rejection of the Savior. Even those who don't persecute believers but simply live apart from Jesus Christ are as guilty of crimes against Him as Saul. He says the crime of all crimes for which men will be eternally damned is to refuse to love and follow Jesus. True salvation must include conviction of this damning sin since it is this very sin and no other that finally separates man from God. That's the sin that separates every person from God is rejection of Jesus. And that's the issue that that Jesus dealt with Saul that day. You have an issue with me. Why are you persecuting me. Has Jesus confirmed to you today your need for Him? Because when you stand before God, the only thing that is going to matter is what you've done with Jesus. It's not going to matter how rich you are. It's not going to matter how good you've been. It doesn't matter how successful you are, how many times you've gone to church, how much money you put in the offering plate. The only thing that will matter is if you know Jesus. 
And so I ask you today, do you know Jesus? Has he met you on your road to Damascus? Running from him, made contact with you and convicted you, confronted you. But you need a Savior. That's what we need to hear today. Notice thirdly, Jesus changed Saul into a new man. When Saul recognized that he was face to face with Jesus, the one he thought was dead was now alive. This had a deep impact on his life because he immediately asked Jesus what he wanted him to do. That's a clear testimony of of the Apostle Paul in Acts chapter 22. There's three times in Acts where we see this story of his conversion. Acts chapter 22 verse 6 says, But it happened that as I was on my way approaching Damascus about noontime, very bright light surrounding or suddenly flashed from heaven all around me. I fell to the ground. I heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And I answered, Who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I'm Jesus, the Nazarene whom you are persecuting. And then he says, And those who were with me saw the light, to be sure, but did not understand the voice of the one who was speaking to me. And then Paul says that, And I said, What shall I do, Lord? Now, that's an amazing question to come from his mouth, right? The one who hated Jesus, the one who thought he was dead, the one who was trying to destroy his church, Jesus meets him face to face, and Saul says, What do you want me to do, Lord? I mean, coming from the lips of this man, a man who wanted nothing to do with what Jesus wanted him to do, his life was headed in the opposite direction, but when he met Jesus... Lord, what do you want me to do? And that became the burning passion of his life from that day until the day he died. Lord, what do you want me to do? What is your will for my life? What what is your purpose for me? I want to follow, Lord, where you lead. I'd, I'd call that an amazing transformation, wouldn't you? Wow. And it happened in a moment. When you meet Jesus, your life is changed in a moment. And there's more to come, obviously, but your relationship with Him from spiritual death to spiritual life. Now, there are many people who will say that they know Jesus as their Savior, but their life has never changed. They don't ask, Lord, what do you want me to do? Because they haven't surrendered their life to Him. And based on the biblical definition of faith, we would have to say that their faith isn't a living, saving faith. When you come to know Jesus, your life changes. If anyone is in Christ, Paul himself wrote what? He is a new creation. The old has passed away. New things have come. And one of those new things is, Lord, what do you want me to do? Lord, what is your will for my life? I don't know how anybody can say that they love Jesus and they have no desire follow Him. There's something wrong. It's not just walking down the aisle or raising your hand or saying, yes, Jesus, be my Savior. If your life has not changed, you've got to wonder, is, there, is that a living faith or is that just a dead head knowledge? One author says, the genuineness of Saul's conversion immediately became evident. 
But he said, Lord, what shall I do? Saul's surrender was complete. As he humbly submitted himself to the will of the Lord, he had hated. He goes on to say, in contrast to the teaching of many today, Saul knew nothing of accepting Jesus as Savior, then hopefully making him Lord later. Jesus is Lord, right? He is Lord. And when we receive him, we receive him as not just our Savior, but our Lord. And there's some that say, you know, I, you know, I, I was saved, but it, Jesus wasn't really. Well, he is Lord. He is Lord. We are to be submissive to his lordship. And that was true in Saul's life from the moment he was saved. Jesus was his Lord. Lord, what do you want me to do? And what did the Lord want him to do? Verse 6, get up, enter the city, and it shall be told you what to do. The men who traveled with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul got up from the ground, and though his eyes were open, he could see nothing. And leading him by the hand, they brought him into Damascus. And he was there three days without sight, and neither ate nor drank. Now, Saul was intending to come into that city as the conquering hero of the Jewish people, right? He was going to come and, and, and wipe out this the way they called it, get rid of these believers, uh, bring them to bound to Jerusalem. And now he had to be led into the city like a little lamb. A little different than he thought, right? Humbled. This man was humbled before God. And that was his first step of surrender to the will of God. And it pictured his willingness throughout the rest of his life to follow Jesus as a little lamb. Lord, you're my shepherd. Lead me and guide me. Are you willing to follow Jesus, even if it means that you need to humble yourself? Acknowledging your need for him. There's another illustration of submission to the will of God in this passage in the life of a man by the name of Ananias. Verse 10 says, Now there was a disciple of Damascus named Ananias, and the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and I love his response, he says, Here I am, Lord. Here I am. That's the, that's the response of the believer, right? The Lord says, uh, Lyndon, you say, Here I am, Lord. Mark, I'm here, Jesus. There he was. So the Lord said to him, Get up and go to the street called Straight and inquire at the house of Judas for a man from Tarsus named Saul. And he's praying. And he has seen a vision, a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. Well, here I am, Lord, but wait a minute. What are you, what, what are you planning for me? He said, Lord, I've heard from many about this man, how much harm he did to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he's authority from the chief priest to to bind all who call on your name. Oh, God, are you kidding me? This man? Are you sure? Who's he praying to? (laughs) You really want me to to go? You can understand how hesitant he was. Uh, One author made this observation I hadn't thought of before, but in Acts chapter 22, verse 12, it describes Ananias as a devout 
man well spoken of by all the Jews who lived in Damascus. And so some believe that he was likely one of the spiritual leaders in that group of Christians in Damascus and may have been one of the spiritual leaders of the church. Ananias may have been on his hit list. Saul of Tarsus might have been going after him because he was one of the leaders of that group in Damascus. And we don't know that for sure, but I kind of wonder. The Lord said to him in verse 15, Go, go Ananias, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the sons of Israel. So when the Lord made it clear to Ananias that that this is what he wanted him to do, he surrendered to the will of God, didn't he? Verse 17, So Ananias departed and entered the house, and after laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, I wonder what he was thinking when those words came out of his mouth. Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you were coming has sent me that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Brother Saul, wow. What an amazing change took place that day. This man who was coming to imprison probably Ananias, now he's a spiritual brother, part of the family of God because Jesus had met this man and had changed his life. He was this new creation. Old things passed away. Behold, all things become new. Changed man. God can still change people today. You believe that? Someone said he's a hard nut to crack, and the answer to that was God's in the nut-cracking business, right? He is able to transform lives. And notice finally then Jesus commissioned Saul to serve him. Why did Jesus save him? Just to spare him from judgment? Is that the only reason God saves us? If you think so, You've got an incomplete theology. He doesn't save us just to spare us from hell. Jesus had a ministry for this man. And he made that clear through Ananias. He's chosen. He's an instrument of mine. And he's going to bear my name before the Gentiles, before kings and the sons of Israel. And guess what? Saul didn't wait very long before he started that ministry. Look at verse 20. And immediately... He began to proclaim Jesus in the synagogues, saying, He is the Son of God. And all those hearing Him continued to be amazed. They were saying, Is this not the one who, who in Jerusalem destroyed those who called on His name? And who had come here for the purpose of bringing them bound before the chief priests? But Saul kept increasing And confounding the Jews who lived at Damascus by proving that Jesus is the Christ. You talk about a life completely changed. He was transformed from a persecutor of the church to an apostle of the church. And God's work in his life forever changed the course of history. Would you agree? Think of the significance of that man's conversion. The course of history was forever changed 
When this man who was a persecutor and a blasphemer met Jesus. So what's the lesson for us? Kent Hughes puts it this way. The story of Saul's spiritual transformation ought to remind us never to write anyone off as being beyond the love of Christ. We may do so with relatives whom we know have heard the word for years without response, or a sinner who has gone to a crass level of depravity, or someone who has gone into a cult or is propagating false doctrine, but Scripture is clear God can reach anyone. you believe that? Anyone. We read Paul's testimony, right? First Timothy. I was a blasphemer. I was a persecutor. I was a violent aggressor. But God had mercy on me. And His grace, He says, was more than abundant. Poured out upon Him so richly. And what's Paul's conclusion in that section? He says, This is why I found mercy, so that in me, as the foremost of all, Jesus might demonstrate His perfect patience as an example for those who would believe in Him for eternal life. You think you're too sinful for Jesus to save you? Is there someone you know who think is too far gone for God to change their lives? Paul would say, look at my life. Look at what Jesus did for me. If Jesus could save the foremost sinner of all, He can save anyone. Now your salvation might not change the course of history like it did the Apostle Paul. But your salvation will change the course of your life. It will change you. It will transform you. My dad used to say it will give you new spiritual taste buds. Right? You love the things of God. You love His Word. You love His people. You love to worship Him. There is no one beyond His reach. And we praise God for that. God could save Saul of Tarsus, he can save me. He can save you. To God be the glory. Great things he has done. Great things he will do. As we proclaim that life-changing gospel of Jesus. That's their salvation in him. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your work in this man's life. Thank you for your work, O God, in my life and in the lives of many who are here. And if there's someone, Lord, who has not yet recognized their need for a Savior, Lord, would you show them today? Would you reveal to them your holiness that they might desperately see themselves in need of you and embrace that good news that Jesus can save the most wretched sinner because he died and rose again for their salvation. We pray these things in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.